Welcome to Credit Hour, a weekly thought-provoking conversation with the brightest minds from the University of South Dakota. They get the credit, we ask the questions. This is Credit Hour. On today's episode of Credit Hour, we speak with Marika Beck-Kuhn, Director of Litigation for FIRE, or the Foundation for Individual Rights in Education, about free speech issues affecting college campuses. Marika, how are you doing this morning? I'm very good. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Now, you are the Director of Litigation for FIRE, or the Foundation for Individual Rights in Education. I guess, first of all, what is the mission of your organization, and what do you seek to accomplish? So we are a um, nonprofit, nonpartisan 501c3. Um, We are an advocacy organization that um, advocates around kind of core uh, civil liberties issues in in higher education. Uh, So our, our, our primary core issues are uh, free speech on campus, freedom of association, um, uh, academic freedom, due process, um, and uh, freedom of conscience. And so what do you do in your role? I am the uh, director of very, very huge department of two litigators. Um, so <laughs> um, so I, I head up uh, FIRE's uh, litigation efforts. So FIRE as an advocacy organization is a little different for is a little different from, uh, I think, what what folks normally think of as a, as a legal advocacy organization. So litigation is not... Um, is not, I guess, the the primary thing that that Fire does. It actually uh, Fire uh, was founded 20 years ago when we only started litigating um, litigating uh, in partnership with a uh, with an outside firm in 2014 and started litigating in house in in 2017. But um, in the the lifespan of Fire, um, it, we've it, engaged in all kinds of advocacy. Uh, uh, speech code reform advocacy, which very often takes you know takes the form of working directly with administrators or with schools or with students working with their uh, with their school administrations to reform um, policies that impact speech on campus. We will write have long um, written letters to universities and then used uh, and, and also use media attention to draw uh, attention to to individual cases and and casework to try and um, exert pressure on a university to. To change its position when it's engaging in in some kind of censorship of a student or group or, or faculty member. Um, but uh, since uh, 2017, as I said, we've been litigating in-house. Uh, so now, when we get a uh, when we get a case that raises a uh, usually a, uh, a First Amendment claim. Um, sometimes accompanied by other claims, but most often First Amendment claim um, uh, in an instance of, of censorship of an individual student or faculty member or student group, um, and we and and all of, all other things do not work, then we may file a lawsuit. Uh, and then, and myself and uh, um, our the uh, uh, my colleague in our litigation department will do the will do the work of the litigation. Now, you're obviously a, a trained lawyer. You went to Temple, correct? Yeah, I went to Temple in Philadelphia. Uh, you know, I'm curious what I guess makes you passionate about this issue. Do you have a, a background in, in free speech, or what kind of drew you to this line of work? I was a, a constitutional law junkie in uh, law school. Absolutely loved con law from the moment I sat down in the class for the first time. So I just absolutely love constitutional law issues. Um, 
I also loved international law, so I feel like so life could have gone one of a couple ways. But <laughs> but um, after law school, I uh, was with a I was with I did a fellowship with the ACLU of Pennsylvania for a year, um, and we did a great deal of First Amendment litigation, um, most often in the K through 12 uh, student student space, um, as opposed to now I'm working in the, you know, the higher ed space, but, um, I, I loved it and went to a law firm afterward. And while I was at my law firm, I did a, uh, a lot of, uh, pro bono work in, on first amendment cases. Um, so going to fire and working predominantly in the first amendment space was, was a kind of, a, a kind of dream come true for a law for a con law nerd from temple. <laughs> um, well, no, thank you. And you know, obviously, you were here on campus today. You gave a, a presentation um, sponsored by the USD School of Law Federalist Society. Um, I don't know if we can just talk about your presentation a little bit. You, you had mentioned that kind of the modern history of free speech begins right around the kind of Vietnam War era. Um, you know, I think even people without maybe a, a background in law might be familiar with the Tinker versus Des Moines Independent Community School District case. Um, can you first, you know, just explain what that case was all about and how it set the stage for um, what we, I think, maybe n know today as free speech? Sure, and and this is and Tinker really um, set the stage in the the a, a couple of cases in the the sixties and seventies um, really set the stage for kind of how we conceptualize uh, free speech on uh, rights on campus. Um, today. Um, Tinker was a case involving a, um, a, couple, a, a couple of student protesters. And I, I should say, Tinker takes place in the in, in the K through 12 context. Um, I'm trying to remember exactly how old the, the student plaintiffs were in that case. I believe they were young teenagers. Um, they so I, I believe they were in high school, but um, they were uh, engaged. They they decided they were going to go to school wearing black armbands with peace with peace symbols on them. They were it, um, protesting the Vietnam War. They were um, wearing the armbands in acknowledgement of a of a ceasefire that was pending at the time, um, and the school got wind of the the of the fact that they were going to wear black armbands in a in silent protest at school and the school administrators just freaked out and got so and were so convinced that this would just cause mayhem that uh they they kind of came up with a a, a new rule overnight that said if you're wearing a black armband to school then you're going to get suspended um and they did so and the the student plaintiffs did um they wore their black armbands they got suspended um case goes up to the Supreme Court and the Supreme Court says for the for the first time really like establishes kind of the ground the 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 ground uh with the ground rule that the the first amendment does in fact apply on um public school campuses so you know it's got the the famous quote that teachers and students don't shed their constitutional rights at the schoolhouse gate so it, it, it set down that that um, that rule in in a way that had never been previously articulated by the Supreme Court uh, it, before that you, you know you had a lot of kind of courts uh, Courts deferring to administrators' control over 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 school environments and kind of using kind of an, an in loco parentis, um, more of an in loco parentis uh, analysis. Um, but here, the Supreme Court said, you know, if you're looking at pure speech, 
in the context of pure speech, um, no, the you know you, you the one the First Amendment applies as a starting point, and then Tinker also uh, established the um, uh, what we kind of now now know as the substantial disruption test, where whereby it said you the, you can't um, censor student speech on campus without uh, a, a, a substantial disruption or a reasonable forecast of a substantial disruption. So so it's essentially setting the um, uh, setting a the the uh, f setting a floor um, by you know say that says you can't just out of hand um, censor speech like you have to have a reason that's connected to the running of the school um, and and that's kind of what the substantial disruption test was was getting at. You know, another case that you had mentioned was this Healy versus James, which occurs in 1972. And you kind of talked about it as it extending some of these principles that were developed in the Tinker case to college campuses in particular. One thing, you had a, a quote from the opinion, and it said that, quite to the contrary, the vigilant protection of constitutional freedom is nowhere more vital than the community of American schools. And I thought this was just a really interesting statement. I was hoping that you could help us unpack it a bit. You know, why do free speech issues... Um, you know, matter particularly on or, or in educational settings, I guess. Higher education, as it's developed in the as it's developed in the states, and the, the and particularly in the context of um, kind of what we know as liberal education, is uh, supposed to be a space of testing ideas, right? Like it's supposed to be the space that's uh, the space that is particularly meant for the testing of ideas and the and uh, the growth of the growth of a young person through learning um, so it's if you're not going to protect speech and kind of robust dis debate and discourse at a at a, a school where that is part of the the, the where that's part of the toolbox that the toolbox of education then where are you going to protect it right and you know, i think that's interesting because you know and obviously it, it sounds weird to say but these are not you know academic discussions for us you know policies have to be developed on them um things of that nature what is your read i guess on levels of support for free for free speech um and do they differ amongst like different populations do you know older generations support free speech um maybe more than younger generations what have you um seen in your advocacy efforts so i would actually say that polls and my anecdotal experience are are somewhat different um you see uh, you see a lot of polls Come, uh, that have come out in the last several years that that tend to suggest that there is this generational difference by uh, uh, um, under which younger generations are, are less inclined to favor free speech and are more inclined to are, are more inclined to say uh, that there should be kind of institutional consequences for for things like hate speech and um, or racist speech or sexist speech. Um, it, it, what uh, speech that may be offensive, but is still, but we would view as you know in, in a in a kind of general con uh, general world context um, as protected under uh, you know protected from censorship by by the government under the First Amendment. Um, so so yeah, I you I think you see 
polls trending one way and causing uh, a great deal of alarm in, I think, older generations about how the younger generations, uh, younger college age generation now are viewing, uh, like do view free speech and do view speech issues. Um, I will say that anecdotally, I, I don't know that that holds up as much because I find when you have conversations with and my the conversations I uh, I tend to have are with are with college age with undergraduate age students most often um, when I'm when I'm talking to students I, I find that there's a um, that if you dig into the if you dig into the the kind of logic behind free speech models with them if you kind of basically like go past the first question then there, then folks' attitude tends to be not that simple and like and quite different and very often protective, uh, like ultimately protective of speech rights because I think that the, if you have a full-on conversation about the um, about consequences of institutional censorship and you know the problems of definition around the around um, punishing uh, things like. Uh, things like a notion of hate speech which obviously how do you define hate speech who's like who's you know who's at some point it's, it's all speech is going to be viewed as hateful by somebody so if you work through the those conversations um then i find that students one appreciate the the kind of you know, will uh, appreciate the double-edged sword nature of of trying to over uh, overregulate speech or over censor uh, censor speech, and and also rec and also uh, view it through the lens of their own activism and their own um, and their own exp like use of their voice in the world and on campus. Um, so yeah, I think like polls kind of say, say one thing, but I, you know, like any poll, it kind of, the, it's, it just, it's a, it's hard to get, to have a full conversation with a poll. <laughs> right. Well, and, and before we get too lost, I want to talk about the last um, case that you brought up in your presentation, which was the, the Papish decision, um, which was basically kind of an early speech code um, decision. And it talked about how the dissemination of ideas, no matter how offensive or distasteful, um, may not be shut off in the name of conventions of decency alone. And I think about you know that in, in conjunction of what we were just talking about with, with um, you know hate codes. What was the impact of this decision? And, and I guess, how has that influenced the discussions that we have today? The, the Papish case um, basically got rid of the notion that you can have a the, a, a, a quote unquote civility code. So I, uh, uh, I kind of think of Papish as one of your you know first speech code cases, right? It was the the University of Missouri had a had a civility code under which a student who distributed um, an independent newspaper with a highly political and highly controversial um, uh, uh, cartoon on the front. Um, so I just a get the facts of the case out there. The, the, the cartoon on the front was a um, political cartoon depicting pol uh, police uh, raping a depiction of uh, the Statue of Liberty and the Goddess of Justice. Um, so obviously very controversial. This is in the 70s. Um, uh, the student gets suspended um, and disciplined under uh, the University of Missouri's civility code. So it goes all the way up to Supreme Court. Supreme Court um, over over 
overturns the the school's decision and says you can't you can't punish for uh the, uh, on the notion of conventions of decency alone, and that sets that sets a boundary for for schools, you know, going forward, and especially and especially today, especially with the difficult conversations that we are having around civility and around hate speech and sexist speech and, and racism and um, the, uh, the like the impulse, I think particularly on the part of a the administration to put in place civility codes or to put it in place a, a you know some kind of regulatory system by which everybody has to has to be like civil with each other and not be jerks is strong right like the the impulse uh, the impulse for administrations to be like all right stop you know everybody be cool everybody be jerks and we're going to enforce that via our rules i there's a, of course, you know, of course, administrations are going to do that. You know, institutional bodies are inherently are inherently conservative, and I don't mean conservative in a in a political way. I mean conservative as in a let's keep you know let's keep the peace on campus kind of way. Um, but uh, so, given that impulse, it's I think it's crucial to have this this kind of bedrock framework established in the 60s and 70s where student political unrest was you know w- was rampant um, to have these kind of the, these uh, you know, foundational bedrock cases in place where you that that uh, it's, that that uh, provide some boundaries by, beyond which administrators cannot go yeah so then and you brought this up in your presentation the difference between sort of protected speech and unprotected speech I, I think that for some, they may hear that and just go like, well, doesn't the First First Amendment protect everything I, I say, right? What is the difference between protected speech and unprotected speech? Um, well, the, the, the general rule is that it's protected unless it's unprotected, which means that the First Amendment, the, the First Amendment protects your speech from a, you know, from um, a, from a censorship or punishment by, a, a, by the government, right? So you have that as you know your starting your your starting rule, and then um, the over the course of um, you know the first Amendment, first amendment development of first amendment jurisprudence in this country, the Supreme Court has carved out certain exceptions that it calls categories of unprotected speech, um, and they're uh, narrow categories of of pure speech that the Supreme Court has said it's, you know, for various reasons, it's just okay to regulate this. Like, so you can, um, for instance, let's take um, true threats. You can, if you're, if the speech at issue meets the definition that the Supreme Court has crafted of, uh, of true threats, then the state can just ban the speech outright. So, this, so the state can make, for instance, criminal laws that say you can't go around threatening other people, like terroristic threats is a, is is a uh, is a uh, uh, a crime in pretty much every state, as far as I know. Um, and to the extent that 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 you're regulating uh, that the state is regulating speech and not f- versus conduct. Um, it has to the speech has to has to meet these constitutional definitions of categories of unprotected speech in order to be prohibitable outright. 
that doesn't mean, you know, obviously there are all kinds of categories of speech under the First Amendment that, that can be, that are subject to different levels of scrutiny and, and whatnot. For instance, you know, commercial speech is, you know, false commercial speech, falsity in commercial speech can be regulated under a different, uh, under a different standard than just kind of, uh, you know, the speech out in the public square, so to speak. Um, but, but these, the unprotected speech categories are just categories that can be outright banned. So because I'm in law school, I'm going to give you a hypothetical. Mm -hmm. I I know I don't want to bring you back. Um, But I mean, isn't there an argument to be had that somebody wears, let's say, like a KKK rub around campus, they go to class in it, they go to the library, they study in it. Um, Doesn't that necessarily implicate like the freedom to an education? yeah, espoused in things like Title IX. Um, isn't there like an equal protection argument? And how do we figure this stuff out? Well, to speak to, to uh, the Title IX or Title VI or um, uh, the, the anti-discrimination context, um, and there, is a, there is a point at which um, speech, pure speech can cross over into um, discriminatory conduct. Um, and that's uh, define uh, you know the the Supreme Court actually has not in the First Amendment context addressed this head on um, to say here's where the the line is where where speech cross uh, where speech becomes discriminatory conduct um, but the um, Supreme Court did um, articulate a standard for uh, in. Uh, a case called Davis v. Monroe in 1999 for um, for uh, peer-on-peer when a school can be held liable for peer-on-peer um, harassment that creates a hostile learning environment. Um, this is in a Title IX context. Um, and the Supreme Court there, again, it wasn't a First Amendment case, but it said that the conduct has to be, uh, the, the, the conduct, which can include verbal conduct, has to be um, severe, pervasive, objectively offensive, and targeted, uh, like targeted at uh, a person or uh, a group. And it has to result in, the, essentially, resulting in the denial of the equal benefits of, of an education. So I guess, so that's a long way of saying yes to your question that there is like yeah of course there's a point where where expression where one's expression um, can cross over into can cross over into uh, actionable harassment um, as uh, I, fire's position is that in order to be sufficiently protective of actual protect of protected speech of political and religious speech and religion any kind of protected speech in order to be sufficiently protective that um, you sh- the, the when regulating pure speech at, or punishing pure speech as discriminatory harassment that y- you should that speech must meet that Davis standard so even though Davis wasn't a supreme or, or a first amendment case we would argue that meeting the Davis standard is so that if if speech meets the Davis standard it's it's appropriately punishable because it's uh, like a, a high enough standard to be uh, to be protective of to be sufficiently protective of speech I think that's interesting. I mean, and like I said, I mean, us being on a college campus here, we're obviously, you know, aware of these issues. What advice would you give campus administrators, campus leadership um, when they wrestle with, you know, these these issues? I I think that 
everybody wants to get it right. It's not necessarily about being right. And so what advice, I guess, would you offer um, to regular regulators that are trying to craft, you know, I don't know, whether it's civility codes or basic rules, you know, should they, should those things even exist? I mean, I guess, what would your advice to people in those positions be? I mean, you know, step one would just be, uh, be aware of the law, you know, be aware of the law and and craft your policies appropriately. Um, And if you've crafted your policies and, and policies and I, I'm speaking of policies that impact speech, um, that is that specifically. But for those policies that impact speech, craft them, uh, craft them appropriately um, with respect to the exi- the laws that exists. So, for instance, for if you're gonna for a school, if you're gonna have an anti anti harassment um, policy, which every school does, obviously, and has to. Um, you know, use the use the Davis standard, like have or something appropriately akin to the Davis standard that you're you're you know you're you're hitting those those uh, those factors that are that essentially are taking the notion of speech into it into the notion of conduct. Um, uh, so one craft craft policies appropriately um, such that they're balance uh, such that they're acknowledging the importance and, and protective and protecting speech and being pre- and being speech protective but also recognizing that there is that that the there is a need for protecting uh, students from discrimination um, so that's in the discrimination context specifically but you can kind of play that out to all kinds of different um, speech uh, speech codes and you know fireworks with or with administrators all the time to appro- uh, to tailor language um, so if anybody wants to then call us up and we will be happy to help them with that but um, I think it's also in I think it's also incredibly important in addition to um, appropriately um, tailoring your to your policies to also try to to also be af- affirmative in and proactive in creating spaces for discourse um, I it's the the it, it is part of the universe of a university's job I think to create the space to learn to 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 uh, create spaces that are appropriate and are and are are useful for learning to speak across difference or facilitating speaking across difference um and it's uh, i I don't know and maybe perhaps you can tell uh, you can tell me this (laughs) whether the like the the kind of media sensation around the notion of of tumult on campus and and the the and, and the partisanship and the like everybody's so divided that we just don't have we just can't even talk to each other we don't have the speed you know everybody's in their corners Uh, to what extent that that is uh, is impacting college uh, like university communities all over the country I think you guys probably know better than we do you know like you can read about it in the you can read about it in the news but I I feel like folks on campus are probably a lot more willing to engage in such like engage with such spaces and engage with such discourse than perhaps the like the the media narrative would have us believe. But I don't know if you you might be able to tell me that better about with, with regard to University of South Dakota. 
Yeah, I, I mean, from my you know, personal perspective, and I obviously don't speak for the university in this regard, I think that I, I'm, I'm not even sure most people are cognizant or aware of it until they're told by other people, if that makes any sense. Yeah. And I think that that's, you know, and, and I kind of brought up the question earlier about um, levels of support of, of like a concept like free speech amongst young people. Part of the reason why I asked that question, we had a um, constitutional law scholar, uh, Greg McGarrian is his name. He works for a university um, or Washington University, St. Louis. He was on campus, kind of gave a, a speech on free speech topics. And it was something that he kind of brought up that he thinks it's really interesting because um, he kind of sees a little bit of a divide. And I, I think his ultimate point w- was closely similar to yours, that once you start to dig in um, and get past just the superficial, like, free speech, what is it, um, most people generally will appreciate, like, a process um, that guarantees everyone a right, you know, to express themselves. I think his argument was that young people today, you know, they see, uh, you know, money and politics protected under the banner of something like the First Amendment or free speech, right? But if they're out protesting a pipeline, you know, the First Amendment doesn't seem to protect them there. And there's that disconnect amongst young people. And obviously, there's like a whole host of legal issues involved with that that distinguish, you know, the the different rights that someone is granted in any particular situation. But I thought it was just like this interesting concept that the way in which free speech laws are enacted or the way in which free speech um, regulations, I guess, are felt, you know, by particular groups really does inform then their ultimate feeling, you know, for that right. Is it protecting them or is it not? Um, And so I don't know. I don't know if that answers your question or not, but. Well, and it's super interesting to, I I think it's super interesting to to think about how, um, how you, view the First Amendment not not being uh, like somebody who's kind of uh, not being a First Amendment scholar, you know, just uh, somebody interacting uh, like in, in, interacting with the idea of the First Amendment. Um, as you say, like, how, how does it affect you? How is it how is it coming up in your life? And 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 the idea of First Amendment rights around money and money in politics and First Amendment rights around how you can use spaces it's like they're very different things, but yeah, it's I can imagine it. I think it's the conflation between you know what I uh-huh. mean, and I think people just don't necessarily know a ton about what, the law and, and how it interacts and how it affects your rights in any particular situation. I think it makes the hopefully discussions like this more important, right? Like that's the that's the whole point is that we hope people you know learn more about it. You know, I, I know we're kind of gearing up towards the end of this. One question I wanted to ask them before we let you go is just. You know, from your position and kind of this national advocacy organization, I think that you probably pay attention to like the broad trends um, with what you see on college campuses, what you see um, in terms of just free speech jurisprudence. I mean, can you project 10 years from now? I mean, do you think that uh, maybe arguments that we have right now about something like a free speech zone, do you think we're still talking about free speech zones in 10 years? Do you think that we've resolved that? Do you think that that battle will move on to something else? Or just where do you think we are in 10, 15 years? Well, I hope that we're not still talking about free speech zones. <laughs> now, I actually, uh, I, um, I hope that we're, t- we're, we're talking honestly with more, with more nuance around uses of spaces on campus because um, I, I, I hope that the question of the the question of how uh, of 
what types of forum, uh, fora, uh, out, outdoor public spaces, for instance, um, and other types of public spaces on campus, uh, like the, the nature of the forum and how they're allowed to be used. I, I hope that's put to rest by that point, <laughs> um, five, 10 years from now. I, I expect actually at some point, um, at some point, I think that the Supreme Court will um, answer certain questions, will take up certain uh, certain cases and answer certain questions in um, uh, that are fundamental to current um, speech code litigation. Like, for instance, in the context of uh, of harassment of uh, harassment policies and um, Con, more kind of content-based speech, speech restrictions. Um, I, I think at some point the the Supreme Court is going to speak to that the, the tension between um, anti-discrimination statutes and the First Amendment in some way in a way that gives uh, uh, that hopefully will um, uh, put uh, put that the issue to bed a little bit. Um, I don't know. We'll see if it actually puts the issue to bed, but I, I think the Supreme Court will uh, will speak to that that kind of the the that tension at some point, it, be it in um, hopefully it's in the college in the context of um, campus speech codes. It may not necessarily be. Um, I think that courts are um, going to be grappling quite a bit in in upcoming years with notions of with how to how to look at um, uh, issues that have to do with security fees um, that uh, other instances that bring up kind uh, that bring up the the idea of the heckler's veto uh, for example so the so the way it comes up in securities fees cases is you have a controversial speaker coming to campus um, and they uh, the, the reaction to that speaker is not supposed to be the anticipated reaction to that speaker is not supposed to uh, to um, be able to dictate whether that speaker can speak or not or the cost of the or, or the cost of that speaker to the to the hosting organization or whatnot that's very that's that's a nutshell surface level kind of analysis of uh, analysis of this I think that courts are going to be, um, doing a lot of looking into, like, uh, looking into the question of of what burden universities have to bear before they say enough is enough, you know, um, before uh, and what level of um, uh, what levels of scrutiny or what kind of policies they need to put in place in order to have in in order to um, impose security restrictions, um, those those kind of questions. I think co courts are going to be grappling a lot with that in upcoming years. I think they'll also be grappling with heckler's veto issues in, in the context of internet mobs. So like we, uh, we've seen an, a number of cases of faculty, um, it's usually like liberal faculty that, um, and just in the, the cases that we've seen come up, um, posting something, uh, you know, something that that uh, offends uh, somebody, you know, offends the internet, um, which is easy to do. <laughs> on they'll post something on Facebook or Twitter, they'll like internet internet will go nuts, and then 
in real life, they, like uh, folks from who are not members of the university communities will start like calling schools, threatening schools. This professor's got to be terminated. Blah blah blah. Um, I think so. I think schools are going to be struggling with that to the extent that they actually uh, that they um, raise safety concerns. Like if you have outs, you know, outsiders calling in threats to schools, whatever. Um, yeah, I think that's going to be, it's a phenomenon we've certainly been seeing. So now I think we'll, we're now going to start to observe how courts deal with it. Yeah. For a a final question, I guess, you know, is there anything that you would want a student on a college campus, um, just even a concerned citizen in a democracy, um, anything that they should know about their first amendment rights, their free speech rights, um, that you think is important? The most important thing to me is use them and um, let other people use them. Like <laughs> speech and counter speech, you know. Um, the uh, I think one thing that's important to um, to to keep a hold of when you're thinking about the notion of free speech is, is when you are and are not talking about um, free. The, the the right to free speech, right? Like, if you are talking about the content of what one of what a person is saying, you know, if somebody says, "I have a free speech right to say X," yes, you do, and you know, I, and somebody's got a free speech right to call you a jerk for saying it, and like, and then you've got a free speech right to respond to that, like the the, and then you've got. A free speech right to have uh, to have a protest or a counter protest or you know I, I encourage people to explore the notions of uh, both their speech and um, and and venues for counter speech you know like let's let's embrace some counter speech. Awesome, um, Marika. Thank you so much for joining us on campus, visiting us. Um, thank you to the Federalist Society here at USD School of Law for sponsoring the event, and we really appreciate getting to have these discussions with experts like you. So, thank you so much. All right, thank you for having me. Thank you for listening to Credit Hour, a weekly thought-provoking conversation with the brightest minds from the University of South Dakota. Listening is one hundred percent of the grades. We hope you enjoyed the episode. 